Take your Bible this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to have, Lord willing, just one more sermon today on, on our mission statement. And uh, we've, we've kind of been all over the place with, with this a bit, just looking at different dimensions and, and aspects. Uh, but this morning we want to look at Matthew 9, 35. And let's begin reading there. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. As we've looked at our mission statement, which is that we at Union Baptist Church glorify, we, we exist to glorify God by growing disciples of Jesus Christ in community, we've, we've sort of touched on a lot of different dimensions of that. We began this series by just talking about what it is to be a disciple uh, and how that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is so much more than just that initial commitment uh, that we often think about. Uh, you know, well, I'm saved, now, now I'm a disciple, but it, it's a life of, of taking up your cross, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and, and following Christ. And it's a lifelong learning process, as we talked about in Sunday school, if you were with us this morning, uh, in which we are both learning and teaching others all, everything that Jesus commanded us. We're, we're implementing His teachings into our lives, and that's a lifelong process. We've talked then as well, sort of hit on some of the themes that, that come and arise from the fact that we exist to glorify God by growing disciples in community, how that is such a vital, important part of, of being a disciple and, and making disciples is this need to uh, belong to community and to work together. And we talked about the need for admonishment, that we need to be encouraged uh, to follow Christ, and we have an obligation to help admonish others to follow Christ. We've talked about how uh, the Lord has given each one of us spiritual gifts to use, to edify, and to build up the body of Christ. And we've talked about how we are to come together in, in our generosity and give so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed here locally, and then we support others as well uh, who... Are, are about the same task that we are, and that is making and growing disciples of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've, I've tried to show is sort of the broadness or the far-reaching implications of that call to discipleship. I, I don't want us to miss, uh, e even in that, uh, you know, I, I've talked about the fact that that this is a lifelong process, that making disciples doesn't end when we evangelize, uh, and, and so we sort of try to push back against some of the way of thinking in, in many churches where it's just all about evangelism, 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 evangelism. That's all we do. That's all we think about. We want to get people to, to know Christ, and, and that is so important. But we've, we've tried to push back and, and show that uh, the work of discipleship is, is much more than that. Uh, it's, it's not exclusively uh, evangelism. Uh, and when we sort of get into that mindset of just focusing exclusively uh, on evangelism, uh, what, what ends up happening if we don't grow and if we don't disciple people uh, is that it really leads to a weakness uh, within the church. Many churches are uh, a mile wide and an, each, an inch deep. And, and ultimately what happens is we, we actually run the risk of losing the gospel itself. If all we say is, go, go preach the gospel, go preach the gospel, go preach the gospel, evangelize, 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 but, but we never slow down and say, okay, someone has given their life to Christ, they've believed the gospel, now let's take time to disciple them, let's take time to teach them and train them. What happens over time of, of doing that and not discipling uh, is that we can even lose the gospel. Uh, we become prime targets of, of our enemy Satan and his deceitful uh, schemes uh, to uh, distort the message of the gospel. Yet this morning, what I want to do is, is I want us to remember that while discipleship is much more than evangelism, it can never be less than evangelism. Discipleship is much more than evangelism, but it can never be less 
than evangelism. You see, the, the problem is human beings, we, we always have a problem to go in, uh, of going into one extreme or the other, right? We say, well, we want to correct this problem, so then we're going to come all the way, we're going to swing the pendulum all the way over here, and now we come up with, a, with another problem. And so in our efforts to, to mature personally and to help others grow deep and, and spiritually mature, let us never forget the call to go and preach the gospel to those who have never heard. You see, we can say, well, we don't want to be just all about evangelism all the time. There's this other work of discipleship, but, but we've got to be careful that we don't forget the work of evangelism. Let us ever be careful that we do not take on the mindset that it just has an inward focus alone. Yes, there, there is a danger of failing to disciple, but there's also a real danger of becoming satisfied in a heady and high-minded faith that has no heart for the lost. And we want to avoid that. All evangelism and no teaching produces a weak and immature Christianity. All teaching and no evangelistic zeal leads to a cold and dying orthodoxy. So we want to take time this morning to to remember our mission and, and remember something so important, the task that we've been given to go and preach the gospel to the lost. We see uh, Jesus' heart for that in, in this task. And as, as I sort of uh, want to remind us and, and to spur us on in this work, that there's no better place to look than to our Savior. And when we look at this text that we've just read this morning, we're reminded that the work of evangelism and winning the lost is something that is very dear to the heart of our Savior. So, so let's just get rid of any idea that would think that maybe we're too spiritual or that we've kind of moved on to more important theological matters and that the work of evangelism is of little importance. What we see in this text is a reminder of the passionate concern that Jesus had for the lost and the fact that His very life was a life of mission. Jesus said of Himself, I came to seek and to save the lost. And if that's our Savior, if that's who we're following, if we are His disciples, we're seeking to become like Jesus Christ, then certainly we're going to join Him in that mission. If we're truly followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot forget or minimize His work, this work of evangelism, in the least bit. And if we do, we have strayed from something that is essential. See, if we forget evangelism, this isn't a minor thing. This, this is something that's essential to our faith. J.C. Ryle said this, the man who does not feel for the souls of all the unconverted people can surely not have the mind of Christ. If you have no heart for the lost, if you have no concern for, for their condition, if you have no desire to see them come to be saved and to know Christ and to be forgiven, you don't have the mind of Christ, Ryle is saying. What we see here uh, this morning as we, we look to Christ and we think about our mission, we see first of all that there is a clear message in this mission, and that is the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. You see this in, in verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You see, this is not sort of tangential to the work of Jesus. This was the very heart of his ministry. The healings and the, the miracles that he did, these things were signs that were meant to attest to his authority and to confirm the message that he was preaching. But the message, the gospel of the kingdom, was what was central to it. In fact, this statement that we've just read in verse number 35, the fact that Jesus went throughout all these cities teaching and, and preaching, the, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that is not a one-off statement. This, that's actually a summary of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's almost a word-for-word -word quotation from chapter 4, verse 23. And it says in chapter 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so what we really have here is the gospel writer Matthew kind of setting off this entire section from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 9. He kind of sets it off in parentheses and he says, this is what Jesus was doing. 
This was his ministry. This is the work that Christ gave himself to do. He went and he, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. That is our message. What is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, if we can summarize it very quickly, we, we recognize that the kingdom is, is a major theme all the way throughout the Bible in, in Scripture, and it's a key theme that the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is a key theme, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God is God's rule and His authority. And if we go all the way back to Genesis, we remember that God created this world and He was ruling and reigning over it supremely. And in that place where there was no sin, where God was ruling and reigning over man uh, and sin had not entered, this world was a place of peace. It was a harmonious place. It was a, piece of, a place of happiness. And there was an absence of any bad or evil thing. And then we have the account of Adam and Eve rebelling against God's authority, against His kingship. And they, they rejected Him as their king. And this resulted in then not only their spiritual death, but the, the death, their physical death, and the destruction of this world that they lived in. And then we have God coming to Israel and promising them and making them a kingdom. But we see as we go through the pages of, old, of the Old Testament that they too, like Adam and Eve, they rejected God's kingship. They rejected God's authority. And as a result, just like Adam and Eve, they are cast out of the land. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Now Israel is cast out of the promised land. And, and there's all, these, all of these curses, all of this chaos, all of this destruction that comes upon them because they have rejected the Lord as their king. And on the heels of Israel's repeated failure to submit to God's kingship and to experience His blessing, God sent prophets who prophesied about a, a coming kingdom in this kingdom, God would send His servant, the, the Messiah, who would be the King and would reign in perfect peace and righteousness. God would dwell with His people and the world would be restored to perfection. And now Jesus comes on the scenes in the Gospel and what does He declare? He's, he comes and He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. That was a message that anyone who read the Old Testament, they knew what that was. It was the kingdom that, that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It was the kingdom that Israel was meant to experience. And, and all of them failed. And now Jesus comes and He says, I'm bringing that kingdom. I'm bringing the promised peace. Everything that was prophesied. Eternal life and, and blessing. The, the curse being rolled back. All of those things. I am here. I'm the King. I'm the Messiah. And that is... Good news. It's the restoration of creation. Jesus is announcing that He is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And that is good news. And, and He even demonstrates it, doesn't He? Again, this is part of the reason that He did miracles and he, he healed. What is He showing? Well, He's showing His authority as the Son of God. He's showing that He's divine and He has the ability to, to cast out demons and He has the ability to heal the lame. But in part of that, what He's displaying is when the kingdom of God comes, the effects of sin get removed. People who are blind receive their sight. People who are, are dead come to life. This is what the kingdom of God brings and Jesus is demonstrating that in His ministry. And that is indeed good news. But it's also incomplete. It is incomplete. If we just end with that, we have a problem because we are sinners. We, we've seen the, the reason that the kingdom of God, the reason Israel didn't experience it is because they continued to rebel, rebel against God. The, the reason that Adam and Eve lost the kingdom of God, they were cast out of God's kingdom, out of the garden, the reason that happened was because of their sins. So if the message, this good news of Jesus, is simply that He came to restore the kingdom of God, that really wouldn't be good news for us. It might be good news, but it isn't good news for us. We are sinners. We are traitors. We, we are rebellious against the king, and therefore we can't enter his kingdom as sinners. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you want to enter into this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, 
He says here, you must do the will of the Father. I, I won't ask for raised hands here, but is there anyone here who could say, yes, I perfectly do the will of the Father in heaven, therefore I'm qualified to enter into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven? I think all of us, if we're honest, would recognize that is in us. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, we get this parable of, of the last judgment, and it, it's pictured as, uh, as the harvest, and you have weeds growing together with the wheat. And this is what it says in Matthew 13, 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burn in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. We just did an entire series on the law. Are there any lawbreakers here? I think that would be all of us. And all lawbreakers will be gathered out of His kingdom. And He will throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The coming of the kingdom. If that's all there is, that Jesus has come as King, it isn't good news. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6-9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why both John and Jesus called for people to repent in light of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But how can this be good news? Well, it's only good news as we see the, the rest of the story of the gospel unfold, right? It is only as we see Jesus, this Messiah King, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, the sins of His people, that we fully realize how this message of the kingdom can be good news. We see in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, even, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We see Him as He's instituting the, the Lord's Supper at the upper room. He says, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is how it's good news, is that Jesus is coming to bring the kingdom of God, but He's also brought forgiveness for you lawbreakers and for me. He, he's also made a way for you to be forgiven and made right with God so that you can enter into this kingdom of heaven. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious good news this is. This is the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was preaching here. He went all over healing and, and doing miracles and preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus has come to restore the earth and make all things new. He has power over death and disease and He's going to make a perfect world where God reigns in righteousness and through His sacrificial death, He has graciously made a way for you to experience this wonderful reality. That is the good news. And that's our message. You see, we have a message. We're, we're on a mission from God. We, we've been commissioned to go and make disciples, and this is the message. It's the gospel. It, it's the good news of how Christ came to bring forgiveness for all people so that we can experience the kingdom of God. That's our, that's our message. We are to announce that Jesus is King and that through His sacrificial death, those who believe in Him and those who follow Him will be forgiven and welcomed into the glorious eternal kingdom. So we need to be careful then, church, that we don't get diverted from this message. We have a message. We're on a mission. We have a message. It's the gospel of the kingdom. So let's not get diverted in, in these days. As I've seen so often... Uh, throughout even my short life that, that it is so easy for Christians and churches to get diverted. We can sometimes get diverted even to things that aren't bad things. Maybe they're things that, that we ought to be involved in, but they shouldn't have our primary focus and they shouldn't, surely should not be the primary focus for Christ church. There are two things that, that I find often that people get diverted away from one is the issue of politics, and the other is mercy ministries. And, and both of these can be good things. We are to be the light of the world. We are to stand for righteousness in our community and in our world and in our nation. Absolutely. But listen, we can become so zealous and so focused on the issue of politics that we forget that we are here to announce the kingdom of Christ. 
You see, there's no politician who's going to set this world right. There's no politician, there is no laws that, that are going to remedy all the problems of society, whether we're talking about here in America or anywhere in the world. The only hope of this world, the only truly good news, is the message of the gospel. And that's what we have. What, what, a, what a tactic of Satan to get us to divert away to, to this issue of what we really need to work on, what we really need to focus on is getting the right people elected or getting the right laws passed. Not that we cannot do those things. Don't hear me saying that we need to just pull away from the, the world of, of politics. But what I'm saying is as a church, as the people of God, our primary focus must be the gospel of the kingdom. This is the hope of the world. People need to hear the gospel. Mercy ministries are likewise good things to do. But, but we, we can so become focused on, on helping people get water that we, we forget that they need the water that gives them eternal life. We can get so focused on making sure that, that people have bread that we forget about the bread of life, that we forget about Jesus Christ. Politics and mercy ministries, these, these are things that maybe we can be involved in and maybe we should be involved in at a certain level. But for the church, we have a mission and it is to preach the message of the gospel of the kingdom and we should never divert from that. We also have, secondly, the motive of our mission and that is the compassion of Jesus Christ. We have a message for our mission, but secondly, we have a motive for our mission, the compassion of Jesus Christ. We see this here in our text as Jesus is looking in verse number 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What is compelling in this account is, is not just the message that Jesus preached, but also his heart for the lost. While there were certainly times Jesus could be, could be harsh, or we would maybe say severe uh, toward people like religious hypocrites, his, his general demeanor toward the loss was one of compassion. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus even rebukes the Pharisees because of their lack of mercy. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so this was Jesus' general demeanor. His general outlook or attitude toward the loss was not one of anger, was not, was not one of severity or harshness, but it was one of compassion. And nowhere is this heart of compassion that Jesus had so clear as in our text this morning. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. How, how do you see the crowds of lost people? Do you see them with anger? Do you see them with resentment? Are, are you sick of, of all the evil and that leads you to, to be angry? That wasn't the heart of Jesus. He had compassion on them. And we notice, first of all, that this was an intense Feeling This word compassion is actually uh, a word, the, the root word where, where uh, another Greek word for intestines or, or bowels. And, and what is, maybe if you've had the King James before, you, you've probably read that before, bowels of compassion, right? You, you've heard that. And, and what it refers to is, is the physical sensation that often accompanies moment of great emotion. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had compassion or sadness or, 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 or emotions like this that move you at such a deep level that you even feel it like in your gut, e even within yourself physically? And that's what this word means. And so Jesus is looking out at the crowds of people. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. And He sees the utter lostness of the world that He came into. And, and as He's looking at them, he has compassion on him. He's moved even physically in his feeling and emotion for them. One person said this, Jesus was physically moved by a stomach-wrenching empathy for the plight of his, his flock. He was literally sickened. This was an intense feeling. This was also a common feeling from Christ. 
This was not something that just happened one time. This, this seems, as I've already said, to be the general demeanor, the general attitude that Christ had as He looked at the lost. In fact, in this very chapter, in Matthew chapter 9, we have the, the account of the two blind men who are calling out to Jesus. And what are they saying to Him? Son of David, you're the king who's come to reign. Son of David, have mercy on us. And what does Jesus do? He extends mercy to them. Son of David, have mercy on us. But we see this same expression that, that Jesus had compassion used several time in, times in, in, in Matthew 14, 14. It says, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He, he looked at them and he, set, he saw their dire condition and he had compassion on them. Again, in Matthew 15, 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Again, Jesus is showing compassion toward the crowds. What, what led Jesus to feel this, this intense feeling of compassion for the lost. I think there's a couple things that, that sort of led him to feel this, this way. First of all, it is the condition. It is their condition. Jesus looks on the crowds and he sees people, it says here, that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's their condition. Their lost condition is what leads him to have compassion on him. He says that they are harassed. And this word literally means to skin or to flay, to, to rend or to mangle. Figuratively, it, it means even just it's used sometimes to be bothered or to be bullied, to be annoyed or, or oppressed. But, but as he's using this analogy of sheep, he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We, we might be able to picture that as sheep, uh, it gives you the idea of sheep who have wandered off and who have endangered themselves. Maybe a predator is, is harming them. Or maybe they've gotten themselves entangled in some kind of briars that are, that are wounding them. And that's what Jesus sees when He looks out on the crowds. He says, I see these people, they're like sheep. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're being wounded. They're being bothered. They're being harmed. And he says, not only are they harassed, but they're helpless. Literally, that, that word means to be cast down, to be cast aside. It's used of Judas who, who cast aside the 30 pieces of silver. It means to kind of just be, be left for, for nothing. And that's what he sees when he looks at the people. He has compassion on them because they're, they're like sheep who have been cast aside. We even use that term, or maybe you've heard that word or that expression before, a cast sheep. A cast sheep is a, a sheep that is turned upside down. They've fallen and they've gotten upside down. There's no way they can, can get right side up again. They can't do it on their own. Uh, sheep are very helpless animals. They, they really have to have a shepherd. They have to have someone to help them to preserve their life. And Jesus says, I look out on these people and what I see are like sheep who are being wounded and they're really, the, the translation here, they're helpless. They, they, they're in this condition in, in which they're being harmed, but they're not able to save themselves. They, they are completely helpless and unable to save themselves, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Certainly part of the reason for, for the people that he's looking at, at being such a horrible state is because the ones who should have been their shepherds were actually predators. Hendrickson says this, he says, what domestic animal is more dependent, hence more helpless when left to itself than a sheep? Sheep unattended, unprotected, and unsought. What a picture of sinners left to themselves or harassed by the rabbis of the day. You see the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, the ones who should have led them in the right path, the ones who should have been shepherding them were, were actually predators. In fact, what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 13 of, of the scribes and Pharisees gives us such a, a good picture of this. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven and people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
Here's the kingdom of heaven. And you ought to be ushering people in. You ought to be leading these sheep into the kingdom of heaven. But not only will you not go in, not only are you not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but you're preventing, you're keeping others from going into the kingdom of heaven. The very ones who should have been responsible to lead these people spiritually on the pathway of salvation are not only failing to do so, but are forbidding them from entering the kingdom. I really believe that what Jesus is pointing to in all of this, when he says that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, what he's really pointing to and what he's lamenting over is the powerful and the enslaving effects and destructive effects of sin on humanity. When Jesus looked at the crowds, what he saw was the ravages of sin all around him. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. And it is breaking his heart the, the condition that these people are in. You see, this is what sin does. This is what rebellion against our King brings. Sin that promises life and freedom and happiness actually brings death and enslavement and misery. And that's what Jesus is seeing. And He's moved with compassion. Like senseless sheep, they have wandered off to their own destruction. Now that they are in this condition, there's no hope for them to remedy the problem themselves. They're harassed and helpless. They're enslaved. They are trapped. And religion doesn't help, does it? Religion doesn't lead them in the path of righteousness. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I think as we apply that this morning, I think we should feel this same sense of brokenness as we look around the world today. Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. You ever stop and ask yourself, what should we be, what, what is there, why should we be mourning? What should lead God's people, followers of Jesus Christ, to be mourning? Well, certainly one of the things that ought to lead us to be mourning is the condition of the lost. We ought to mourn over the fact that there are, there are countless masses of people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Consider some of the damage that, that sin is bringing even in our own world today. We, we see the damage and the fallout from the many ways that we have distorted our sexuality. We see young girls suffer from psychological damage and, and eating disorders, and yet we continue to treat women as purely sexual objects that must meet society's standards from a physical standpoint. Young boys and, and men who suffer from the effects of a pornographic society, and they, they can't seem to break free from this addiction. It, it dominates them, and it even transforms the way that they look at women. We see people in our culture mutilating their body. They're so confused. Mike mentioned it in prayer this morning as, as we gathered together. That they're, not, they're so confused about something so, so basic as gender. Men and women. As we look around at a world like that, we, we've just got to see that these people are harassed and helpless. They, they have gotten themselves into a, a, a way of thinking that is actually bringing destruction to them, and they can't see it. We see the damage that our greed and selfishness and our, our covetousness are, are causing. We, we see people who are just, you know, overflowing with debt. Our nation is, itself is overflowing with debt, and we see individuals who are in the same boat, and, and we see people who, who can't stop themselves, though. They, they just, their greed and their desire for more and more and more just compels them and propels them to just keep seeking material things. And we could go on, the list could go on and on and on about the effects and the ravages of sin in our world, but beyond all of those temporary consequences, the Bible teaches that it is our continued sinful actions that will bring about our ultimate judgment. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is destruction. Humanity is headed a hundred miles an hour for the day of judgment and their sins will bring them eternal condemnation. And we ought to see that and that ought to move us with compassion. We ought to see the wreckage and the carnage of all the sins of society and that ought to move us to compassion for the lost. This is what Jesus 
is experiencing here, I think he looks and he has compassion because of the condition of the crowds, but, but also just by sheer fact that there are crowds, that there are many who are in this con- condition. He looks around and he, see, he sees masses of people. And as we apply that to our world today, we can, it can almost be overwhelming to think about 7 billion people. And, and so many of them are pursuing sinful paths in life. And they, they don't know the way to the kingdom. They don't know the way to forgiveness. They don't know the way to salvation. They, they're harming themselves. They're bringing wreckage into their own life. And they're leading ultimately to eternal condemnation. And they're helpless. They're not able to save themselves. But even as we think about the people around the world, let's just think about the people in our community. Just, just think about and picture, and we've just had the fair here not that long ago, just picture the crowds of people if you were there at the county fair. And just, just think about the fact that many of them, they don't know the Savior. M- many of them are in this lost condition. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Think about our school systems. Think about the factories full of people who are working and trying to make a living who don't know the Lord. Think about all the people that you see in Walmart. Think about the crowds of people. And as you think about them, think about their lost condition. And you ought to be moved to compassion. I would just encourage us as we sort of apply this point here this morning that that this really ought to be our attitude toward the lost, shouldn't it? Many Christians that, that I'm around seem to have more of an, an attitude of anger, an, an attitude of outrage, an attitude of disgust toward the lost. Can you believe this is going on in our world? And listen, there is a time for righteous indignation, right? There is a, a sense in which we should, we should be angry at, at the ravages of sin. And, and, and yet, at the same time, our primary demeanor, our primary attitude toward the lost should not be one of anger and rage and I can't believe they're doing this now. It, it ought to be one of compassion. I can't believe they're so lost. They need the Savior. They, they need to know the good news of the kingdom of Christ. That ought to be our, our mindset. Again, I mentioned a couple of mentalities or a couple of things that can pull us away one is this political mindset that sometimes enters in and and becomes pervasive and again this isn't to say that that we should not be politically engaged but sometimes when that becomes the forefront when that takes center stage in our faith this this political mindset we we see people who are lost not, not as the mission field not as the harvest that needs to be reaped we see them as the enemies who need to be defeated and that's not the right attitude of, of Christians toward the lost. The attitude of Christians toward the lost is that they're lost. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They need the Savior. They need to know the good shepherd. Also, I mentioned about mercy ministries. Those can be such good things to do, right? But if, but if that's the only mindset or the primary mindset that we take, sometimes what we do is all we see is people's physical suffering. Which is not, that, that is significant, right? If we have the ability, there, there, we ought to try to meet the needs of people and, and alleviate physical suffering. But if that's all the suffering that we see, if we don't see their spiritual condition before the Lord, if we don't see them as, as lost, then, then we're missing what is really central. You, you see, you can give them bread, but they need the bread of life, right? They need the Savior, they need eternal life. And so we need to remember that we are called to preach the gospel and not lose focus on that. Thirdly, this morning we see a mandate for the mission. We see the mandate for the mission, which is the call of Christ. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The first call of Christ here really is to look to the harvest. Look to the harvest. And there we see something of a promise. It's really just a statement of fact, but, but I, I, I see something of a promise in that. Uh, the fact that He says that, that the harvest is plentiful. I think what Jesus is saying there is that there are people who will be saved. 
There are people who, who will come to Christ. There are people who will turn from this life of sin and the Lord will work in their life and, and they will come to know Christ and enter into the kingdom of God. There are people who will be saved. There are people who are ready to believe. And according to Jesus, do you notice here, there, there isn't just a few. The harvest is plentiful. He doesn't say, hey, there's a few pieces of fruit, low-hanging fruit that you'll be able to go out. No, no, the harvest is plentiful. There are, there are many people who will come to Christ. And I think sometimes we like to make excuses, don't we, about why we shouldn't enter into the harvest. We don't think they want to hear about religion after all. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to talk about that. They're not interested in that. Or we live in a post-Christian society. People don't even want to hear about truth anymore. And so there, really this mandate to go and make disciples, we must be living in the last days and, and, and that probably won't even be effective. We might as well just kind of huddle in our holy huddle here and, and, and it's just us four and no more and we're going to hunker down for the last days and we're going to survive. No, no, no. The mandate continues. The words of Jesus are ever true. The harvest is plentiful. That's the promise of the harvest. But secondly, we see the, the problem of the harvest. You notice the problem here? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's more harvest than there are laborers, it appears. This is the way I think we unfortunately find ourselves as a church, Union Baptist Church. I think if we're honest, we've got to recognize that there are few, few people who are truly motivated to go forth and preach the gospel. And if I'm honest with you, even about my own, the condition of my own heart, is that often I'm not as motivated to go into the harvest as I ought to be. The truth is, the compassion that Jesus had doesn't come naturally to us sometimes, does it? Maybe, maybe for you it does, but I think for most of us, that there are things that, that sort of pour water on that fire, so to speak. That, that keep us from being as passionate for the harvest as we ought to be. One, I think sometimes we're just deceived. We're deceived about our, our own condition. We think ourselves more spiritual than we really are, but what we've already seen, if we don't have compassion for the lost, we're not nearly as spiritual as we ought to be. We're selfish. Our, our primary concern, again, if we're just being honest, our primary concern is for ourselves. We don't want to be bothered we don't want to be embarrassed by going and being rejected as we go out and preach the gospel. We're concerned about our own comfort rather than the eternal destiny of others. If, if we're just being totally honest, I think those are some of the things that, that we should recognize. We are being selfish, and that's part of the reason we're not going into the harvest as we're called to do. We're distracted. We live in a materialistic and entertainment-driven culture. We don't have time to think about the spiritual condition of others. There, there are more important things to us than helping other people. And we're faithless. We, we doubt the certainty of God's revealed truth. His, his revealed truth concerning punishment. Do, do you really believe in eternal punishment? Do you really believe the words uh, of Scripture? Uh, and the words of Christ about eternal condemnation and eternal punishment, if you truly have faith, if you truly believe those words, how can you not be more compassionate? How can you not be more compelled to go into the harvest? We doubt God's revealed truth about punishment. We, we doubt God's revealed truth concerning provision. Do you believe that faith in Christ is the only way to salvation? And we doubt God's revealed truth about His power. We doubt the, the certainty of God's power. We, we doubt that people really will come to be saved. Let, let me ask you if, you, if you understood and you really knew that you would share the gospel with somebody this week and that the Lord would use that to lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ, would, would you be encouraged to go and share the gospel? I think if you knew that with a certainty, you, you would be like, all right, there, there's guaranteed success. Well, here's the reality. There is guaranteed success, although you don't know who it's going to be. So get busy going into the harvest and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. The power of God will save. And then I think part of the problem is that we're confused. We see the large number of churches and the large number of people who profess faith in Christ, but the reality is 
we're confused about the fact that many of them really don't have saving faith in Christ. Many of them don't know the Lord. And so there's a, there's a call here, secondly, for us to pray. What is the, what is the response to this problem? The harvest is plentiful. The, the laborers are few. So what should you do? Well, it's interesting that he doesn't immediately say go into the, into the harvest. What he calls you to do first is to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to pray that he would send laborers into the harvest. He, he does, notice what he says here, to pray. He doesn't even say to pray for their salvation. Pray for the salvation of the lost, although that would be true. He says to pray for laborers. You see, God uses means to bring about the end. And the means that God uses to bring the salvation of others is by sending laborers into the harvest. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that without a preacher, no one will hear the gospel and no one will be saved. So if we're moved by compassion for the lost, the place that we need to begin first and foremost is praying to God to raise up laborers into the harvest. Again, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, if we know anything of prayer, let us make it a point of conscience never to forget this solemn charge of our Lord's. Let us settle it in our minds that it is one of the surest ways of doing good and stemming evil. Personal working for souls is good. Giving money is good. But praying is best of all. By prayer we reach Him without whom work and money are all alike in vain. We obtain the aid of the Holy Spirit. Money can hire workers. Universities can give learning. Congregations may elect. Bishops may ordain. But the Holy Spirit alone can make ministers of the gospel and raise up lay workmen in the spiritual harvest who need not be ashamed. May we never forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. Church, we need to be praying as we look around to the lost world. We need to begin with prayer that God would raise up labors, even in our own church, that, that would be sent into the harvest. We are to pray, but we are to go as well. We see this in chapter one or chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, we didn't read this, but, but you notice what Jesus does here. After he points them to the harvest, after he says pray uh, that more laborers would go into the harvest, in, in chapter 10, verse number 1, we see him calling the 12 and then sending them out to go and do what he's been doing, which is to preach the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's what he just said he was doing. In chapter 4 and then in chapter 9, that's the work that Jesus has been doing. He's going out and announcing the kingdom and healing. And then in verse number 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them and he gives them instructions but now Jesus sends them out on the same mission that he has and what I would say is we need to recognize that you and I are here as a result of the prayers of those first apostles just think about this Jesus said to his apostles who he was getting ready to send out apostles you pray that more laborers would be sent into the field who are those more laborers that the apostles were to pray for I think it's I think it's us it says it, Jesus says in John 17 I pray for those who will believe in me through their word and, and I think that's you and I we are the laborers who are to go into the field that the apostles were to pray for and so we are to go we're to pray we're to look to the harvest so we do this and we bring this to a close this morning I just want to close with a, a few applica application questions First of all, do you see the brokenness of our world? I would just encourage you to begin to open your eyes and, and look. And, and don't look through, through the lens of, of the political realm. Don't, don't look through any of those things. Just simply look through the lens of Scripture. Look through the lens of the Gospel. And, and what you should see there is a world that is dying, a world that is hurting, a world that is harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see the brokenness? Do you feel compassion? Honestly, just ask yourself, do, do you really feel compassion for the lost? If you don't, I think one of the things that you need to begin to do is pray that God would break your heart 
over the lostness of this world. If what you sense is more a spirit of anger and rage and and unhappiness with the state of this world, won't, won't you pray that God would change your heart, that you would see the world in its lost condition, and that you would feel compassion as our Savior did? Do you know the message? We have a message to go and to preach to the lost. Do you know that message? Or are you somehow unclear about the gospel of the kingdom? If you are, you need to train yourself. You need to be discipled yourself so that you can take the gospel wherever you are, wherever you're working, wherever you're going to school, wherever your family members are. You need to be the one who's taking the gospel to those people. You need to know the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Will you pray? The command is to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for our church that God would raise up laborers to send into the harvest? Will you pray? We have prayer meeting on Wednesday night. You have times of personal prayer. This should be one of the things that you're always praying for. And will you go? Be open to share the gospel wherever God has placed you. But wherever you are, whether it's a workplace or school or, or your family, whatever that location that you're, your sphere of influence, you should be a gospel-proclaiming follower of Jesus Christ. You are an apostello. You are one who has been sent wherever you are. And you have a mission to go and proclaim the gospel. Will you go? And then for us collectively as a church, I want to ask that we collectively would be thinking more about how can we reach our community as a church? I've just got to admit, I think this is one of my own weaknesses. I have a heart for discipleship and teaching, but, but I, I sometimes don't have the zeal for winning the loss that, that we ought to have. And sometimes I feel like that reflects in us as a church that, that we don't have the zeal for the loss that we ought to have. We need to be thinking strategically. We're working to plan things for the upcoming year. Let me encourage you, be thinking about what are some ways that, that we can reach out to our community. I don't have all of those answers, right? But, but I want to ask you to be praying that the Lord would lead us as a church. How can we be more effective in reaching outside of these four walls? We, we have a great commission that we are to carry out and go and make disciples. What are we doing as a church? Pastors, deacons, members, how will we collectively in this upcoming year that's, that's ahead of us, how are we going to work more fervently to go out into the mission field, to go out and labor in this harvest. We're sometimes good about planning Bible studies and fundraisers and events and nothing wrong with those things. But we need to be planning and strategizing to win the lost. What, what can we do collectively as a church? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your son Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who came and laid down his life for the sheep. We thank you that you've drawn us into your kingdom and uh, you, you've allowed us to be a part of this. And, and yet, Lord, we recognize that with this comes a great responsibility that we are to go into the harvest. I pray that you would raise up laborers in the harvest in, in, in our own church, individuals who have a zeal and a passion to proclaim the gospel and go into the community. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom about how we can grow in this area collectively as a church. How, how can we reach the lost? Give us wisdom and, and guide us and direct us. Give us open doors of opportunity for that. And we do pray for the lost. We pray that you would save them. Give us a heart of compassion. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.